Hello, and welcome to the Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the important work being done by women in psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and I'll be introducing you to women leading psychedelic businesses, women shaping governance and policy, female therapists and doctors, indigenous leaders, researchers, practitioners, women leading nonprofits, and others who are making very important contributions to the psychedelic renaissance. Through our podcast and online community, we're committed to ensuring women have a strong voice in shaping the future of psychedelics, and we're very excited to have you on this journey with us. When will we finally have legal access to psychedelic-assisted therapy, especially for people who are suffering from end-of-life anxiety, crippling PTSD, and others who just can't afford to wait? That's what we explore in today's episode. You'll hear from three very influential and experienced women involved in shaping and enforcing psychedelic policy who will help to demystify the latest legal changes. We're going to dive deep into the latest decrim and ballot initiatives regarding psychedelic access in the United States, as well as recent and future initiatives that could greatly accelerate access to psychedelic therapy in the next year or two. We're also going to look at how the current laws in Canada are shifting quickly and what's likely to happen regarding psychedelic therapy in this country in the next year or two. We're going to look at what needs to happen after the laws get changed, the important policy changes that need to be in place if we want to ensure that people have ongoing access to psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. And perhaps most importantly, we're going to explore why having women's voices and feminine influence in the policy space is critical to the shaping of effective laws and regulations governing psychedelics. Joining me are three women who are playing key roles in shaping and enforcing psychedelic policy and who have some very unique and important perspectives on how the laws around psychedelics are changing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics. I am your host, Sonia Stringer, and we have a very hot topic for today's show. We're going to examine how women are influencing legal access to psychedelic medicines. No doubt laws are changing quickly around psychedelics. In just the last few years, we've witnessed the decriminalization of these substances in several U.S. cities, a few states and provinces in Canada. Other steps have been taken at the federal levels in both countries to create legal pathways for greater access to psychedelic therapy, but there's still a ways to go before any of us will have widespread, safe, and legal access to the use of psychedelic substances. So this is a big topic, but today we're going to do our very best to cover some of the important history around the laws governing psychedelics, the current ways in which people are getting legal access, and where the psychedelic legal landscape may go in the immediate and long-term future. So let me welcome to the show, Courtney Barnes, Sherry Boudrum, and Susan Chappelle. And perhaps we'll start by having each of you quickly introduce yourself and just share some of the details regarding your work as it relates to psychedelic policy. Courtney Barnes, welcome. Perhaps we'll have you start us off. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. My name is Courtney. I am a lawyer who is focused on the decriminalization and drug policy reform movement happening across the United States. 
I'm licensed to practice law in Colorado, California, and Texas. And my passion is policy. So helping people heal through plant medicine and ensuring that we are creating responsible and accessible healing mechanisms throughout our ecosystem in America. Thank you so much. And Sherry, please introduce yourself. Hello, it's great to be here. My name is Sherry Boudram. I'm the CEO and co-founder of CanDelta. CanDelta is a leading regulatory and scientific consulting company. We focus on cannabis and the psychedelics, among other regulated industries. We have offices in Toronto, New York, and New Jersey, and also in Mississippi. We specialize primarily in licensing, so helping companies receive or individuals receive a Section 56 exemption, how to structure clinical trials, assist with clinical strategy. We also help with general compliance and regulatory affairs, operational optimization, site inspections, technical document writing, a lot of policy and education. So a lot of different services, but the core foundation is really providing our clients to build really strong world-class business strategies to really help their businesses. Me personally, I have a PhD in chemistry. I started my career in the government. So I worked in Health Canada for a number of years. I actually started my career back in 2004 as a drug forensic chemist under the Controlled Substances Program, which is very different back then, and then moved into policy and then moved into the cannabis program as a senior compliance and enforcement inspector. So I did that for a number of years, inspecting licensed cannabis facilities. And then I started consulting on the side, and then that snowballed to consulting for individuals looking to start up cannabis businesses. It was right on the onset of legalization. So I actually left my job, started CanDelta with another colleague of mine who also worked at Health Canada who is also a PhD chemist. And then we started CanDelta. So we've been operating for about five years now. So yeah, that's my start. Thank you. And last but definitely not least, Susan Chappelle, please introduce yourself too. Thank you so much, Sonia. It's such a pleasure to be here with you amazing women. I've been following everybody's careers without the work that everybody is doing in this space. We wouldn't be where we are today, where we're seeing a renaissance of psychedelic medicines around the globe. I've been interested in complementary alternative medicines since 87. I started my first clinic at that time. I built one of the first alternative healthcare clinics in the North of BC and ended up integrating it with 24 practitioners into regular medical care and hospice care, uh, which included a lot of plant medicine at that time. And of course, it wasn't legal. I ended up running for politics and was a two-term municipal politician in British Columbia and worked hard on making cannabis accessible to cancer patients, providing municipal bylaws as well as municipal licensing so that these businesses who were growing and providing plant medicines for hospice care were able to be licensed so they couldn't be brought down by any other level of government. I went into neuroscience and neurobiology so that I could add science to complementary medicine. And I'm a published researcher was working with the National Institute of General Medical Sciences to prove the effect at the biological level of complementary medicine. I went back for an MBA and economic development degree, as well as ethics and leadership degrees from Cornell. Wow. Congratulations. Really great stuff. So perhaps we'll start with where things are at in the United States. So Courtney, for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with where the laws are governing the use of psychedelic compounds, would you share briefly about the earlier status of psychedelics, why the laws changed in 1970, and where we currently are in terms of decrim or legalization measures in certain cities and states? 
So that's a great starting point. In the United States, drugs are regulated primarily at the federal and state level pursuant to the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Prior to that time, there was a lot of research and exciting developments happening in the psychiatry space with respect to compounds that are classified as hallucinogenic substances. But given this political change and dynamic with immigration and the war in Vietnam and Nixon as president, we entered into this prohibition era where pursuant to the Staggers-Dodd bill for psilocybin and LSD, and then two years later, pretty much all of your psychedelic compounds under the Federal Controlled Substances Act of 1970, we've entered into a period of about 50 plus years of complete prohibition. Starting your 101 of how psychedelics are regulated in the United States, at the federal and state level, drugs are classified pursuant to five schedules based on their potential for abuse and any redeeming therapeutic value. Schedule one is the most restrictive, and that includes your classic psychedelic compounds, so LSD, psilocybin, mescaline, peyote, also MDMA. Those are all schedule one drugs, which means the federal government believes these compounds to have a high potential for abuse no accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Essentially, without a DEA permit to engage in research or production, which is very stringently regulated, expensive, and costly to obtain, you can't possess, use, share, distribute, or produce psychedelic compounds in America. That said, we are entering this new period with a grassroots movement that is helping to provide access to these compounds in a way that is happening quicker than what would occur at the federal level. Right now, we have two states that have passed psilocybin reform measures. So Oregon was the first in the country to pass a cannabis-esque access model where you'll be able to go to a healing treatment center that's licensed at the state level and purchase psilocybin for use under supervision with a state-licensed trained facilitator. That will be implemented in 2023, so it's going to be a big year for watching to see what happens in Oregon. And then this past election in November, Colorado passed the Natural Medicine Health Act, which has a broad scope decriminalization provision in it, which decriminalizes the non-commercial use, possession, sharing, and production of your sort of natural psychedelic compounds. So Ibogaine, Mescaline, DMT, psilocybin, psilocin. Initially, the commercial regulatory structure contemplated in Colorado is specific to psilocybin. It will be similar to Oregon in which you'll get a state license that could enable you to produce psilocybin and administer psilocybin, and you won't be able to take it home. It's different in cannabis in that regard. You aren't able to just go buy your product and take it home and use it as you wish. You will have to use it under supervision, but it enables a state legal regulatory access model. And then Colorado also contemplates the addition of new compounds to these access models starting in 2026. So while it will start with psilocybin and theoretically should, because there are such different use protocols, safety protocols, sort of regulatory considerations that are unique to each psychedelic compound, at least provides that gateway for new compounds to be added to that system. On top of these two states leading that primary access, we have 17 cities across the United States that have passed some sort of local decriminalization or technically deprioritization of law enforcement legislation. These 
typically come in the form of resolutions or ordinances that state it is the city's lowest law enforcement priority to engage in the prosecution and investigation of adults engaging in the non-commercial use of psychedelics. So if you're 21 plus and you are you know, growing your own mushrooms at home or sharing them with a friend, but you're not selling them and you're not driving and you're not kind of engaging in any activity that would create harm to the public, it essentially says that, hey, law enforcement, you have much better things to do. Please use your resources accordingly. What's important to note is that the local resolutions and ordinances are not bulletproof. Because drugs are regulated at the state and federal level, as I mentioned, local resolutions cannot trump that sort of hierarchy of law. But in practicality, we are seeing a significant reduction in arrests and, you know, no real public harm or health consequences. It's a very delicate responsibility we have in these cities that are starting to take the lead and push this movement forward, but we can do it and it's the right thing to do. So it's really an exciting time for drug policy reform in the United States. Very much so. And there's several terms that get tossed around a lot, and I'm not sure if people are super clear on their definitions. Would you mind defining the difference between decriminalization, medicalization, and legalization of psychedelics? That's a great question. So put simply, the decriminalization of a activity is not authorization, but it's the removal of criminal penalties associated with conduct. So for example, if you were to decriminalize the possession of psilocybin, you would no longer be at risk to be criminally prosecuted and having a criminal record for having psilocybin on you. That doesn't make it legal. It doesn't make it authorized. You could still theoretically have consequences associated with that conduct that are just not criminal. For example, you could be charged with a fine or community service. You could also have, you know, ancillary consequences, for example, employment and other things. So while legalization is really what you need to fully remove the stigma and ancillary consequences, decriminalization is a critical first step forward. If we are going to create environments where people are able to profit from engaging in activities that involve the production, distribution, and administration of psychedelic compounds, we absolutely need to ensure that people aren't going to jail for engaging in those activities. That said, decriminalization, simply removal of criminal penalties, not authorized conduct. Legalization, on the other hand, is the authorization of specified conduct. It would actually give you that green light to engage in activity, but usually with additional regulations. As we've seen with cannabis, you are permitted to engage in certain activity within restrictions. For example, you can't distribute without a license. You'll need a license to do that. But if you have the license and you, the state is questioning that conduct and you wouldn't be subject to a fine or criminal penalties. Medicalization is not necessarily a technical term, but that's what we're seeing with the drug development movement, where MA and psilocybin are likely to be FDA approved for psychotherapy assisted use in the next three years or so. While those proprietary compounds and treatment mechanisms are likely to be rescheduled from Schedule 1, it's not like now that MDMA is FDA approved for MAPS as protocol, I can just go buy MDMA on the street and it's legal. It's not that. It's neither legal nor decriminalized, but it's available via prescription and you can legally access it in that way. So again, a lot of technical terms, but I think the big one is the decriminalization is the removal of criminal penalties. Legalization is authorization of specified conduct and medicalization is drug access route as I understand it best. Very helpful distinctions. Thank you very much for that. And I know this is almost an unfair question, but can you comment on how psychedelic laws could potentially change in the U.S. in the next five years 
For example, MAPS seems to be on target to get MDMA rescheduled with the FDA. I know there's several politicians now that seem to be getting involved, and Biden has even potentially proclaimed that psychedelic therapy could be legalized within a few years. What do you see possible there? And I know that's you know anyone's guess at this point, but from your viewpoint, what do you think is realistic? Cristobal, I have great intentions for our future. I would love to continue to see the local decriminalization movement continue to progress. As I mentioned, we have 17 cities. The most recent was San Francisco. I think that's really important to ensure that we have this sort of ground up approach going. But that said, we are in a place where we have these highly established drug access models that have been in place for 50 plus years and that are very, very important. So as you mentioned, MDMA is likely to be approved by the FDA within the next two years. And in that scenario, you will be able to seek MDMA in a psychotherapy-assisted treatment setting that is totally federally legal and state legal. So that's really, really exciting. I think once MDMA and psilocybin get those initial approvals for PTSD and treatment-resistant depression, that will be a domino effect for additional research because once we're able to establish those initial safety studies, then we can build on those studies to expand the indications of which you might be able to be prescribed those compounds. So again, it's going to be specific to those particular indications of PTSD and treatment resistant depression. But once you have that initial approval, it does make it easier to get subsequent approvals. And we do have DMT and LSD and Ibogaine crawling their way through the drug approval process. So I hope to continue to see more research being conducted and the removal of barriers to research, which is what some of this legislation is seeking to do so that we can more quickly get these into our toolbox. But at the federal level, yes, there was an interagency request to create a task force to study how these psychedelic compounds, primarily MDMA and psilocybin, could be used in pharmaceutical applications They want NIDA and DEA and FDA to sort of teamwork and and focus on this, essentially. It doesn't really have too much teeth to the call to action, but it at least is a statement that says a significant group of bipartisan leaders believe that this is an important thing that we should be considering. And then there's been a lot of different research bills being progressed at the federal level and at the state level. Texas passed a research bill, Connecticut, Massachusetts. We're seeing a lot of development looking at the potential of these compounds to be a priority to states and the federal government, which is really important. And then I think after California tried a couple times to decriminalize psilocybin, Senate Bill 519 passed the Senate and almost the Assembly, but didn't quite make the finish line. And that was a broad scope psychedelics decriminalization measure. So hopefully with Colorado coming online and Oregon coming online, we'll continue to see states in that progression forward. I would really hope that we continue the state level movement that enables us to be a bit more creative than this five schedule box. Right now we have five schedules in the United States that encompass every psychoactive compound that's regulated as a controlled substance in the world. And that's just drastically you know, insufficient. It's based on a short number of factors and primarily abuse potential and medicinal value. And it really eliminates the variability and potential that all of these compounds have. If we could create a regulatory system for psychoactive compounds, especially plant medicine, that's unique to that container that is able to acknowledge the thousands of years of like indigenous and spiritual and medicinal use, but also recognizes the medical value. That's what I hope for. So I really like seeing the state level movement. I'm grateful for the cannabis policy reform movement happening because it's enabled us to think a little bit more outside the box of what's been established as our baseline legislation for the past, you know, since 1970. 
Mm-hmm. And it was disappointing to see SB 519 get so close and then not pass. I'm curious if that were to pass, what influence do you think the changes in California might have on other states, being that it is such a large state? Do you think that might actually encourage others to follow suit? Absolutely. California is a progressive leader, even just showing how quickly it made it all the way through the Senate committees before it was pulled, but it just was a timing issue and a priorities issue. I hope that California is able to reintroduce it in this next session and that we're able to get it passed because yes, I think California has the opportunity to be a huge role model for the rest of the country. In the interim, I'm so grateful that Colorado went ahead with its ballot initiative and the voters made the right choice there. So I'm eager to see what happens with the decriminalization movement in Colorado. And again, I like to just remind people what a incredible privilege and responsibility we have in Colorado right now to make sure that we are good role models for the rest of the country. Well said. Well, let's turn the focus then to Canada. And Sherry, would you mind sharing where the laws are in Canada as far as legal or medical access for psychedelics? Yeah, definitely. Canada has had a long history of restricting controlled substances, including psychedelics. The current legislation that psychedelics is under is the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which was passed in 1996, really repealed the previous legislation, which was the Narcotic Control Act, and that also included parts of the Food and Drugs Act. So the Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1996, and that included schedules one, two, three, four, and five. Psychedelics are primarily scheduled in schedules one and schedule three. So you'll see MDMA in schedule one, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, they're in schedule three. And in Canada, psychedelics and controlled substances holistically is regulated federally not provincially or, or municipally, although there are the possibilities of obtaining a class exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to permit provinces to have some leeway in how they want to manage the controlled substances. So for example, you'll see the class exemption for British Columbia that allows some level of decriminalization to permit some personal access in small amounts for illicit substances. There is no current recreational framework for psychedelics in Canada, but under the current framework, there is a legal medical access pathway that can be executed in three buckets. One, through a clinical trial, which is often seen as the most effective way to advance research with an unimproved drug. Secondly, through the special access program, as of January 5th of this year, permits access to restricted drugs with, of course, the caveat that its use is to be under emergency circumstances only and really for the use of a restricted drug that has shown some promise in clinical trials or if it has been approved in other countries but not yet approved in Canada. And the third way is through an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act or the CDSA. That's also known as a Section 56 exemption, noting that the Section 56 exemption is provided under limited circumstances. You just can't really you know, apply for the Section 56 exemption with Health Canada and they automatically award it. It really has to be justified and demonstrated that there really is the use case for it, that other avenues have been initiated prior to requesting the Section 56 exemption. Although the Section 56 exemption is not really meant as a mechanism to circumvent the special access program or the clinical trial pathway, those are the three overarching buckets in which psychedelics can be accessed in Canada. So if you kind of take a a step back from that, there are also regulatory controls in place in Canada 
with possessing, with manufacturing, research, analytical testing, import and export, the sale of any substance that's listed under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So in order to be able to handle those substances, a company would need to apply for a controlled substance dealer's license, which is authorized by Health Canada. And a lot goes into that application and consideration needs to be taken into what you're really doing with those compounds, what compounds you're using, what the purpose is. And that feeds around how you really build out your business, what the facility will look like and the security controls around that to maintain the security of those compounds. The license is awarded specific to the location and to the company that applies for that license. So it all feeds together in terms of how the framework really plays together with the actual access to medical patients, as well as the manufacturing in Canada. Great. And I know from speaking with individuals involved with lobby work internationally, I often heard people comment about how progressive they viewed Canada being. Why is that, do you think? Is it because we've been one of the first countries to legalize cannabis or does it relate more to our psychedelic policy? That's a really good question. I think that Canada has been really progressive in the advocacy work behind psychedelics. A lot of new companies have started up. There have been a lot of new clinical trials. In Canada, there are currently, I think, I believe, nine studies with psilocybin and Health Canada's clinical trial database. And there are no approved psilocybin drugs in Canada, but there has been definitely a lot of push from the stakeholders in Canada to push the government to make some decisions on changing the policy. That has been the driving force media-wise in, in putting a lot of light on Canada. But that being said, I think that a lot of work has been recently done in the U.S. I mean, Courtney just mentioned a lot of new progressive legislative movements that are happening in the U.S., and Canada is also looking towards that progress to influence the advocacy work that's being done in Canada. I wouldn't necessarily say that Canada is more progressive than the U.S. I think Canada still is very cautious on the decisions that they make and how that will impact international relationships. And the same with cannabis, with the federal illegality of cannabis in the U.S. Canada is progressive. I wouldn't necessarily say that they are more progressive than the U.S., in my opinion. And just like in the United States, where individual states are taking it into their hands to create their own laws, it seems like that's starting to happen in Canada as well as in, not in British Columbia. There's been some decriminalization actions that will be in effect in 2023. Alberta, I think, just recently passed its own regulations in terms of how psychedelic therapy will be developed. I know it's a hard question to answer, too, but how do you see the laws continuing to change at the provincial level in Canada as well as the federal level? In BC, BC received the Section 56 class exemption to decriminalize possession of illicit drugs for personal use. That is to be in effect from January 31st, 2023 to January. 31st, 2026. And that's going to be throughout British Columbia. In Alberta, they am amended their Mental Health Services Protection Act. And that essentially is allowing for a framework that sets standards for psychedelic drug-assisted therapies for mental health-related issues. So what has been amended is really the therapy component of psychotherapy rather than the drug itself. So the drug itself, it's still federally regulated. So I think that's an important nuance to really be aware of from the regulatory context. I think that in the next few years that many other provinces will start to consider similar models. In Ontario, there are a lot of issues with addiction and mental health as well. That's notable, especially in, in a very populous city like Toronto. And there's definitely a push for solutions on how that can be mitigated. And if that is something that is 
seeming to be working in BC and in other provinces, there's definitely a driving force for implementing and obtaining similar exemptions in other provinces like Ontario. I do think that we're going to continue to see that sort of push and continue to see more clinical trials, more scientific evidence, and more safety and efficacy of psychedelic medicines for very specific indications. There's definitely more interest in private and public funding for psychedelics because of the general public interest that is currently happening. Where Health Canada is concerned, it definitely is on their radar. The governments are viewing the progressiveness of psychedelics within Canada and finding solutions for addressing serious issues. The stigma around psychedelics, it's still there. Unfortunately, I think it's still present, but it is changing to become something that more individuals are becoming aware of, especially with you know COVID and all the issues that were around that and kind of bringing forward the need for solutions to address mental health. Hmm, Very interesting. Thanks. And Susan, I'd love to invite your perspective in on this question because there's so much attention on getting the laws changed around psychedelics. But as you've learned from your own experience with cannabis, what happens after the law is changed in terms of drug policy and other considerations? It's really important as well. So can you share what you learned from the legalization of cannabis and what you consider some very important policy issues, things we need to keep in mind as psychedelics become either medicalized or legalized. Thanks, Sonia. That's such an incredibly important question because I think people forget as we go through these discriminalization actions and Section 56 exemptions provincial-wide, really, it's still not about allowing regulatory access to these medicines. that And it wasn't just cannabis in my community. My community was highly plant medicine oriented from tinctures and oils and topicals and nutritional mushrooms, as well as psychedelic mushrooms. You could gain access to almost any substance if you were a patient and you had people in the community making that medicine for you. And because it was plant medicine, it wasn't regulated, totally restricted substances, but a lot of our land use had to do with growing these plants and access to this plant medicine. We forget that federal regulations dictate what the province and the municipalities do, but municipalities are also independent in the land use. The budgets all come from the municipal governments. And all of these land use changes that have to happen in order to manufacture, research, and control these compounds comes from a municipality. If there's no licensing for psychedelic labs, if there's no licensing for growing mushrooms, there is currently no regulatory mechanism in which you can grow mushrooms except for our regulations and our regular mushroom farming regulations, but it's not the same growing a controlled substance. And it's sort of this gap in our regulatory policy that we forget about while we're trying to legalize. I was a sitting councillor. I remember the day that I walked into chamber and realizing that it actually put our entire community's economic development at severe risk because all of a sudden now you need to be regulated under Health Canada, which is a federal act, but you have no municipal land use to be able to build your cannabis grow. And immediately what you saw was municipalities regulating and banning land use for these substances. So yeah, there's a lot of work to do. And I'm hoping that municipalities, instead of just looking at advocacy and all the groups that have started up, really include municipal politicians and communities in the legislation that may occur. And as a researcher, it really concerns me when you have the public markets entering the research space, because it brings in 
bias, both regulatory bias and scientific bias, because you're not going to see a lot of negative results being published in this space. When you go down a path of trying to prove that a molecule is effective with a hypothesis instead of a curiosity of what the effect is and willing to come out with bad or good outcomes, it really skews the research landscape. So if researchers end up working with private companies, how that will skew results and what the consequences in the research landscape will look like. Really interesting points there. And that's the perfect lead into my next question, because I think we can all agree it's one thing to get the laws changed. It's another to craft effective policy and regulations governing the use of psychedelics. So I'd love to toss this question out to all of you. If we were to look into the future and discussions are happening to craft effective psychedelic policy and regulations, what stakeholders, what groups do you believe need to be at the decision-making table? Who needs to be participating in those conversations? And how important is it to ensure women's perspectives are also included in these discussions? That's the golden question of pretty much all of the policy reform movement happening at the state level and most of the controversy as well. As we are moving so quickly throughout this process, it's difficult to ensure that it's not just the people that are supporting and funding these policy reform measures have a say. We experienced this in Colorado where we had a grassroots group come in that wanted to be a part of it. And then we had a more national group come in that had the resources to really run it. And while there was an effort to collaborate in the beginning, that sort of fizzled out and created a lot of dissonance. I do hope that we are able to continue and respect this more community-based policy reform because that's the best way to get the most voices heard If we could do local reform and local regulation, then what's right for one community is likely to be more inclusive at that level than it would be at the state level or the federal level. But there's no correct answer. We're struggling with this with peyote and this indigenous use component and finding stakeholders that want to be involved in the policy reform movement that want to have a voice and then also others that don't. But how can you have a holistic voice of that community if you don't have everyone there that wants to participate. So when it comes to the question about women, I think we critically need to see more women at the table. We are the feminine, the healers. We are creation of life and we're carrying this generational trauma. This medicine, you know, has both masculine and feminine dynamics, but the nurturing and healing and like self-love really is a feminine essence. And I think it's really important that more women come and get involved in this movement because we need those voices to ensure that this isn't just another business model. Oh, well said. Great points. Sherry, anything you would add there too? Yeah, I'd I'd really love to see a diverse panel at the decision-making table, whether that be, you know, industry representatives, pharma, indigenous MDs, therapists, you know, kind of the whole gamut that would actually be involved in executing the framework. Right now in Canada, there is a Cannabis Act review and there has been a panel that has been named and there's a lot of criticism in that. The panel is very, you know, well-educated, has a lot of great experience, but there's some criticism that there isn't the perspective of advocacy or an industry perspective. So it's difficult to accept those perspectives when what is going to come out of their feedback will be one-sided, right? The core recommendations that the government will be taking will be from these individuals. And it would really be a shame if that's the pathway that's going to be followed in psychedelics when there really is a great opportunity 
in this emerging industry to get it right. If you could say that, you know, have the opportunity to learn from the canvas industry. I don't always like making the comparison to the canvas industry because I think there are some really important differences with psychedelics. There's a really good opportunity to improve on some of the shortcomings that the canvas industry has had. A great point. Susan, anything you'd add there too? Yeah, you know, community engagement is something that's a bother for a lot of governments because it's hard to get right. You're never including everybody, but you have to try. And nowadays, it's not about just gender. It's about difference of opinions. It's about including community groups and advocacy groups and not just academics who often get it wrong and haven't been in this space for a long time. The people that rely on plant medicine for end-of-life care or for trauma or PTSD, the veterans community, the transsexual community, people that have been harmed by not being included in the conversation are now, again, not being included. You're never going to get the full perspective until you invite community to the table. And you should also have academics leading these conversations and guiding these conversations and making sure these conversations are equitable and that the feedback is turned into positive or negative outcomes because there's going to be equal. People are going to also oppose plant medicines becoming legal. We have to look at where we're at. That is a widespread industry. There's a lot of licensing and standardization should be going on. Research should be going on. But we also have to recognize where we're at at this moment in 2022 with equity, diversity, community economic development and regulatory control. Wow. Thank you all for your input. I know that's a big question to even attempt to answer at this point. It's going to be something for a lot of discussion, no doubt, in the next couple of years. If we could do anything to inspire more women to get involved in this part of the psychedelic space, any recommendations or insights that you might share there as well? Courtney, do you want to take that one and start us off? Sure. I feel very fortunate to have been in the cannabis policy reform movement and the psychedelics policy reform movement, which has been very inclusive and supportive. And I fortunately have not experienced a significant amount of discrimination. However, it is there. And I really think from my perspective, it's really just a lack of female perspective present at the table. It's not that men have necessarily not been receptive to our ideas. It's just that there's a lack of those ideas being put forward. So I would love to create that open invitation for women to get into the space because their voices are really what's driving this, which is healing, which is radical self-acceptance and authenticity. I've been going through this big healing journey over the past six months. And I finally had the revelation one day that I was like, I don't think my parents ever talked about feelings my entire life. Like they were both law enforcement, high security clearance. You know, we said, I love you. And they were very objectively supportive. But when I looked at all of the trauma and emotion that psychedelics have helped me confront and work with and, and embrace with love, I was like, wow, I've been carrying this for so long because I had no healthy understanding of how to process that emotion and experience at the time it happened. So therefore, it's just been negatively impacting my sort of energetic field and psyche for my entire life. And while that shouldn't be a feminine versus masculine differentiation, I think women have a huge role and opportunity in the healing of our planet, helping people get comfortable with expressing their emotions and bringing psychedelics into the mainstream in a way that's supportive and healing. I think we're critical and I hope to see more of us getting involved. Wow. Super helpful perspective. Thanks for sharing that. And Sherry, what would you add there? 
I think about this question often, to be honest. I've been working in a, a regulatory framework for a very long time, and I've seen how the cannabis industry has evolved and then the psychedelics industry. Where I sit as a consultant, we work with many different companies in Canada, in the US, in cannabis, in psychedelics, you know, large companies, small, publicly traded, private academic institutions. So we kind of see everything. And there's really only a handful of women-led companies. Like I could count it on my hands. And it's really a shame because you get into the conversations with, okay, like what are some of the challenges you're having as a business owner? Where do you need help? Where would you like to be? And I do hear many women owners saying that, you know, I've had issues with funding. I can't get an investor. I had an investor and they dropped me. They're trying to negotiate a deal with another company. And it's hard to go up against male-led companies and have those negotiations because they don't always feel that they're respected the same way. And me personally, as a woman in a woman-led company, I do have a co-founder, a counterpart who is male. And unfortunately, and fortunately, I've had to leverage his maleness in conversations to move our conversations with negotiations or partnerships forward sometimes because I think men are just used to interacting with each other a certain way than they are for a woman. Women kind of have this tendency sometimes when they have challenges, especially when they're, you know, kind of C-suite executive or like leaders in their space to work in a silo and not always ask for help. They're kind of embarrassed, to be honest, to say that they need help. And I find myself in that situation as well. You don't always really know how to get that help, where to find mentors. And I think that these networks of women that are being born, like this one here, that's really important to have somewhere to go, just have conversations about your experiences, where to find solutions, build your strengths. And that always leads to how can we as a collective help to shape policy or what's important to us, what's not being heard, that those perspectives of women are really taken into consideration because women really do have a strong force in businesses. I think that they change the general environment of a business. They really balance, I think, the playing field at a corporate level. And there's also a profit case, I think, to be made for businesses that are led by women or shared by women. So I think that's all very important in the conversation when policymakers are making policy to take into consideration. So yeah, definitely important in, in those discussions. Mm, thank you for sharing so frankly about your experience. And it's disheartening to know that those discrepancies still exist for women in business in general, and certainly in the psychedelic space. But I really appreciate your point. The more we operate in silos, the more that continues. And the more we can engage in conversations like this and be networked and learn about and support other women and the work they're doing, the faster all of that can change. So thanks for sharing that perspective. Susan, anything you'd want to add there as well? You know, I have a 15-year-old person in my household who reminds me about my gender language all the time and just how we speak about gender. And coming from my experience, I have to remind her, there was five women in politics when I got into politics in 2011. Five women in British Columbia. And we clung to each other. And we very quickly realized how much policy affected equity and diversity. And in communities, there's policy levels that really do affect a person's ability to operate in their community, to operate in a business community, and then to operate at a corporate level. I opened one of the first psychedelic companies in Canada, and I was made the CEO of Haven Life Sciences. And it was the same thing. It was exactly like Sherry said, raising funds was a nightmare. You're not only in a nascent industry that lacks regulatory policy to operate, there's going to be a lot of 
difficult systemic change that has to be built. And that's where I think women have a great place in imagining the future of systemic change that doesn't necessarily have to be policy related. It can be accessories. It can be information and education oriented, but starting to lobby your local council and bring the conversations up and make it an election issue. And I think women have a big part to play in being able to contribute stories, life experiences, and as caregivers, like I look at the nursing community and the medical community that is out there actually trying to gain access for their patients as well. There's a lot of women on the forefront, and I'm using binary language again, (laughs) not just women, all genders. This has to be a place for everybody in this industry. It cannot be just a binary industry. It has to be a very fluid industry, just like medicine creates, that open fluidity of ideas. And the benefit of that medicine is that it opens minds to different ways of being in the world. Great perspective, Susan. Thanks for saying that. I know we're getting close to time here. I just want to sneak in one last question, if I could, because I know there's plenty of people listening, plenty of people who are advocates of the laws getting changed around access to psychedelics. If each of you could recommend one thing that someone could do to really support the laws changing in either the United States or Canada, what would you recommend? Courtney, I know we've talked a little bit about telling your story. Would you share a little bit more on that? Yes, that's my call to action. I'm happy to connect anyone who reaches out with an advocacy organization, if I know of one in their community. The most direct and immediate thing you can do to support this movement is to share your story with people. If you've had a healing experience, a spiritual awakening, or just a fun, productive time using psychedelic compounds, the more we can integrate those stories into society and from people who may not fit that stereotypical user image the quicker we will be able to see progress from a policy standpoint. I think it's really interesting how cannabis originally was keep it away from children. And then it was children that actually ended up getting us access to these compounds because their stories resonated with people, with parents, with grandparents, siblings. And it's the same thing with psychedelics. So whether it's talking to your mom or, you know, a stranger, your boss or colleague, it's incredible how unifying the struggle of emotional well-being and healing and mental health is. Psychedelics are a very unifying compound. So that's my call to action is don't be afraid to talk about it. And if you are, reach out to one of us and we can help you create a dialogue that's not going to put you at risk. Brilliant suggestion. Thank you for that. Sherry, what would be your one call to action that people could potentially do to help support the laws getting changed? Yeah, talk to your MPs, talk to your local MPs. Health Canada has been very aware, I think, of all that is happening in the psychedelic space. They recently circulated a public communication to stakeholders on risk management measures and best practices and clinical trials because of the general interest in the use of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So there's definitely more communication of the importance of psychedelics. It's becoming more in the forefront in media as well. And from the MP level, there is awareness that is coming out from that now. If the MP has an interest in moving forward health policy to tie it into that and say there needs to be some change in policies around general health and alternative medicines. So I think talking to your MPs can can really start to make a difference, especially as there's, there's definitely more education, I think, coming to the forefront with psychedelics. Really great. Thank you. Susan, anything you want to add there too? Yeah, I would like to add that in your local area, you'll have an MP and a municipal politician that 
is taking care of your area. But often people forget about municipal councils. You may be talking to the MP for technology and <laughs> being like, hey, what about psychedelics? And their faint interest, you'll end up talking to an aide and they'll take your notes, but I'm not sure how effective it is having those single voices. And I agree with Courtney about telling the stories. I gave it a go. I just moved into the community of Toronto. And as soon as I got here, I heard somebody was talking to Nathan Erskine Smith about psychedelics. So I got in touch with his constituency office and ended up talking with his assistant. If you have a powerful story, writing letters to MPs can be a useful thing. You know, when we had people show up at local councils, it's powerful somebody sitting in a seat and saying, I need this to change for whatever reason. And I think that Theracell's doing an amazing advocacy job trying to gain access for patients and working with politicians. On the Hill in Canada, the conversation is already happening and Health Canada is doing the best they can without having strict research completed and trying to figure out how we're going to make five hours of therapy equitable. That's going to be the next conversation that has to be in policy because it's great if you have access, but it's going to be expensive access. That's somewhere where I think advocacy and commitment by patients is very important. Well, in the essence of time, I think we'll wrap up our discussion there. I know we barely touched the surface of a very, very important topic, but I do encourage all of you listening to follow these women and closely watch the work that they're doing. I'll make sure that your social media links and websites are listed next to the podcast here. And I just want to personally acknowledge you, not just for your considerable expertise and contributions to the psychedelic space, but also for being such inspiring role models for other women who want to get involved in this work. I know sometimes you're working in environments and conditions that aren't always super friendly to women, but through the work you're doing, you're certainly changing that. So thank you for sharing your perspectives today. And I'd love to have you back at a future time when we can discuss additional changes in the laws governing psychedelics. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Celebrating Women in Psychedelics podcast. If you like the episode, please hit subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a free online community where you can meet and network with the guests of the podcast, as well as other women involved in psychedelics from around the world. To find out more, go to celebratingwomenpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Thanks so much and see you next time. Music